Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. A new Marist College poll finds New York Governor Kathy Hochul, who's been in office for less than two months after former Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned in disgrace, is the frontrunner for election next year. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Hochul, who was virtually unknown to New Yorkers before she took over from Cuomo in late August, has a 55 percent approval rating, according to the Marist College poll. Director of polling Lee Miringoff says 49 percent believe the new governor is doing a good job in office. It's fair to say that she is entering an election season as the early frontrunner with others including former Governor Andrew Cuomo as underdogs. Cuomo has not ruled out trying to seek his old job back. He has $18 million in a campaign war chest, and he and his attorneys continue to defend the former governor against State Attorney General Tish James' report. It found he sexually harassed 11 women. Cuomo's lawyers are also asking federal prosecutors to drop a probe into whether he and his top aides hid nursing home deaths during the COVID-19 pandemic. Miringoff said, if the former governor runs, he faces a steep challenge. About three-quarters of New Yorkers, including 74 percent of Democrats, don't want him back in the governor's mansion. These numbers are not good. And just saying, you know, I did a good job and let's ignore the nursing home, let's ignore the, the James report, and let's just, you know, say reclaim it is not going to be a convincing argument. He's got to provide some stronger argument. Other potential candidates include New York City public advocate Jumani Williams, who's launched an exploratory committee and was touring upstate on Tuesday. Attorney General James is also said to be considering a run. Like Williams, James has also embarked on a statewide series of visits to New York City, Long Island, and upstate to distribute funds from the state's settlement with opioid manufacturers. James, at a recent event in Albany, did not directly answer questions from reporters on whether her tour was a prelude to a campaign announcement. I'm not focused on politics. I'm focused again on healing um, and making sure that individuals understand that there are resources now available for all those who are struggling with opioids. The poll shows Democratic voters are open to electing both James and Williams. Close to 60 percent view the attorney general favorably. And while nearly half like Williams, he's relatively unknown to voters, with 42 percent saying they don't know enough about him. The poll finds, though, that in a potential Democratic primary race with other candidates, including James, Williams and Cuomo, Hochul is ahead by double digits. The governor, who has already announced her intention to run in 2022, has been holding fundraisers, including with deep-pocketed donors. She said little, though, publicly about her campaign or potential opponents, saying she prefers to focus on her job right now. People want to start chatter and conversations and all kinds of distractions uh, early on before we get uh, closer to an election. 
I will not be distracted because that is not good for the people of New York. And while the poll finds that most New Yorkers approve of the governor's handling of the pandemic and the state's economy so far, more than half also believe the state is headed in the wrong direction. Maringoff says that can be a danger sign for an incumbent politician's future prospects. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, as we just heard from our Karen DeWitt, there's a new merits poll out on Governor Hochul, who is preparing to run for a full term next year. She's viewed favorably by more than half of state residents, 55 percent. They found the Democrat with a 49 to 31 percent approval rating. 56 percent of respondents say Hochul is a good leader for the state, while 77 percent, including three quarters of Democrats, say former Governor Andrew Cuomo should not run again in 2022. A fifth said they were unsure about the job Hochul is doing. When Democrats were asked about the potential Democratic primary field in 2022, Hochul topped a hypothetical three- and four-way race against Attorney General Tish James, New York City public advocate Jamani Williams, Cuomo, and, quote, other. Hochul has the highest favorability of the four, while Cuomo is the only one with a negative rating. But, of course, we don't know who's actually going to run, ultimately. Look, this is all preliminary stuff. Hochul's been the governor. She has been acting in a competent fashion. I think that's fair enough to say. One of her friends gave me a call and said she heard me say that she was competent. And that doesn't begin to describe the job that she's done, basically. She's much more than competent. No, I'm sticking with it. She's been competent. She's predictable. She said the things she should be saying. She hasn't made many mistakes. And, you know, people are ready for a little bit of relaxation after the Cuomo years. Nevertheless, nothing's happened yet. You haven't got a campaign. If Tish James comes in, I think it's going to be huge. But if she stays out, then the present governor wins. And there are some others, David, like Tom Swazi and other people who may feel that if they come in now, they, they get to win. I think Tish James is the one to watch. She's been a, an astounding attorney general, and she's done extremely well, gets very high marks from most people. And she speaks extraordinarily well, frankly, better than Hochul. So if it comes down to a debate, if it comes down to the way in which this competition goes on, uh, you had better believe that this thing is not over yet. And of course, there is the possibility, right, that former Governor Andrew Cuomo might try to run. Well, I know a lot about Andrew Cuomo. I've been studying him for years, as you know, David. And I remember very well when Carl McCall, who would have been the first black governor of New York, was in. And at the last minute, Cuomo came charging in. I criticized him for that. And it was not pretty with his father, the governor. I can tell you now that if it was good for Cuomo then, it'll be good for him this time. He'll do it again if he thinks he could win in a crowded field and pull out enough votes to win the Democratic primary, he'll do it. And as you just pointed out, a crowded field could actually mean he could do it. Absolutely. Look, don't count Cuomo out. If you know anything about his character, he said the other day, it's all politics. And he meant it. You know, there are people in this world who are just tough. He's one of them. Speaking of tough or at least presenting that way, you spoke with the head of the state Republican Party, Nick Langworthy, this week about all of this. And, you know, they've got, as the presumptive nominee, Lee Zeldin, the Trumper representative who would not certify the election for Joe Biden. And, you know, he did quite a dance in your questioning over how much Trump figures into their choice of Zeldin. Trump is calling the shots, David. We all know it. 
He may not get on a phone and say, do this or do that, but they all know what he wants them to do. And the Republicans in New York State are just as scared of Trump as the Republicans in Mississippi. Look, there is no question that it's going to go forward and that they will put Zeldin up and that he will lose. In fact, I said to the chairman, you know what? If he wins, I'll meet you in Macy's window. That's an old standing joke, which is, I'll kiss your butt in Macy's window if he wins. And he laughed at that. But as you pointed out, and he tried in many ways to separate the Republicans in New York from the former president, but you quickly pointed out to him, then how come there's a picture of you and Trump on the front of the GOP website? Look, we do know it. They're all scared to death of Trump. The Republicans are united behind Trump, even though the senators may talk to each other and the other Republicans of traditional Republican lineage may grouse and gripe to each other. They're not going to be, be um, uh, anti-Trump publicly because if they are, they're out. And what about his criticism that's Langworthy, the head of the Republican Party, of the Democrats, of Cuomo, and that Kathy Hochul supported it all along? It wasn't until the very end when the opportunity came, she grabbed it, and that she's just as much responsible for, quote, the bad things that happened in New York as Cuomo. Well, that's certainly what you would say about the lieutenant governor of a governor. Hochul was the number two after uh, after Cuomo. She's tried assiduously to rid herself of the yoke of Cuomo hanging around her neck politically, and she has apparently convinced an awful lot of people of that. To me, she is doing what she has to do in order to be governor again. She's trying very hard. She's not making mistakes. And as I have said a lot of times, she's competent. One of the things that Langworthy did point out, and he was forceful about it, was that no matter who the Republican president is, they don't usually help electorally for Republicans in New York. Former President Trump, he said, actually helped raise the membership of the party. Well, look, you know, in New York, the Republicans don't have a chicken's chance. They're done. You are chairman of the Republican Party in New York. You know what your role is. Throw as much dirt on the Democrats as you can, on the Democratic governor. It's all predictable. You take every problem that there is in this society, and you say they're guilty of it. Some of it will stick. Most of it won't. New York is now a very, very blue state. My assessment is they have almost no chance to win the governorship in New York, and they will pick people who will give out the story. In fact, I think this chairman is less likely to pile manure on top of the Democrats than an awful lot of others that I have seen. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Charton. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Back with us this week is Fred Cole, president of United University Professions, UUP, Higher Education Union. We spoke to him last week about the SUNY teaching hospitals who have been dealing with the pandemic. 
We continue our conversation this week about the need for more funding for SUNY. Well, you mentioned the chronic underfunding, of course, when it comes to this area. And not just SUNY, but, you know, healthcare in general, even home health aides and others, yeah. nurses. And we've we've seen strikes all over our region, all over the country because of lack of resources, of, you know, low pay and other things like this. Now, let me bring in a person I know you know well. That's the chairman of the Health Committee in the New York State Assembly, Richard Gottfried, who joined us a couple of weeks ago and said that right now, because of the supermajorities, I mean, you've got the Democratic Assembly, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic governor, that they have the votes to enact universal health care in New York. And he also said that there have been discussions with the unions about making sure that you know that the benefits will be there that you've already secured. And he suggested there would be even better benefits going forward. So could universal health care in New York help deal with the chronic underfunding problem? Well, I think there are two sides to the um, to the equation or two variables to the equation. Um, UUP has a strong and consistent uh, support for single payer uh, as as an option whereby we can get to universal coverage, uh, publicly funded. Uh, that is a that is an appropriate goal uh, for New York State. But I also think it's an appropriate goal nationally. Um, but I think there's another variable in the equation, and that is the healthcare infrastructure. What COVID has shown is, in stark relief, is that the healthcare infrastructure simply could not deal with the pandemic. Um, when you have to take a hospital like Downstate and basically turn it into a COVID-only facility, which it was for several months, creating terrible uh, financial losses for them because they could not do all the other treatments and surgery that they would do, which are moneymakers. And that's about a lack of resources in the infrastructure, in the training and education of healthcare professionals. We are going to be facing uh, critical shortages, not just in nursing, which everyone is aware of, uh, but in physicians and all of the tech areas to support uh, the healthcare system. We also have a problem that, you know, across New York State that we and UUP have been trying to raise for years is there are healthcare deserts um, in some of the small rural counties. Um, I live in Schoharie County. Uh, you know, we have very limited healthcare there, very good professionals. We get good healthcare, but it's very limited. And what is needed is an investment in public hospitals, in clinics in ambulatory care centers across the state so that people can get the health care they need so that they stay well and they don't just go into an emergency room when they're feeling very sick and need to get emergency care for a situation that is much worse. Uh, it leads to chronic illnesses, which we see from, you know, in, in central Brooklyn uh, with a community of color that is beset by chronic illnesses, but also in rural upstate counties. And it's because there isn't enough put into resources put into, there aren't enough resources put into the infrastructure of hospitals, of clinics, and so forth. If you don't build up the infrastructure, Dave, it doesn't matter what the funding mechanism, a public funding system will not improve things if the infrastructure isn't there. And that both you know, steps must be taken. 
I personally prefer that the infrastructure be built up first so that then the transition would be much smoother because we are talking about healthcare, which is the largest industry in New York State um, and an important one. Um, and fortunately in SUNY, there are, you know, there are four incredibly good medical schools and also the College of Optometry uh, in Manhattan. Uh, we, there's a lot of training going on in SUNY. There needs to be funding for that education so that we don't have a worsening of the shortages of professionals uh, that are so necessary for carrying forward the health care, again, whether it's publicly funded or not. Yeah, and it goes beyond the infrastructure you're talking about to things like even ambulances that, yes. you know, in rural communities where there's one ambulance for a four-county area. I right. mean, talk about bad health outcomes. Yes, Exactly. Well, I'm going to ask you a final question here, Fred Cole, president of UUP, United University Professions. And by disclosure, United University Professions is an underwriter of WAMC in the Legislative Gazette. What's this I see here about tell your lawmaker pass the Thrive Act? Yeah, and this is because uh, UUP has taken on a much more aggressive uh, stance um, on a whole host of issues because we believe it's necessary for uh, the federal government and the states. In this particular instance, the Thrive Act is a set of um, uh, pieces of legislation that deal with, uh, for the most part, uh, environmental issues that have a dramatic impact on communities of color, the whole area of environmental justice. COVID is an example of environmental injustice. Um, because of poverty globally, because of the need for nutritional sustenance, what is oftentimes happening is that human beings are going into areas and harvesting um, food that carries with it viruses like the coronaviruses. Um, now, is that where COVID started? We don't know, but we have seen it in other, other uh, epidemics uh, and over the past 20 years. And yet when it hits, as it did in the United States, COVID struck the poorest communities, uh, indigenous peoples on native uh, land in uh, Indian reservations, and the communities of color in New York City. That's who was getting hurt. Um, and their health condition was made worse by the fact that the air that they breathe, the water that they drink, is of lower quality. And so the Thrive Act is based on the idea that we need to address these big overarching issues, you know, like health care, but also environmental protections and aggressive uh, dealing with the environmental injustices that we're seeing playing out in the climate catastrophe uh, that are those. And it's made manifest in so many things that we've been seeing. Is that a role for a higher ed union? I think so, because our work is all about the future. Uh, Krista McAuliffe, the uh, teacher astronaut who lost her life in the Challenger accident, uh, said, we're, we're teachers. We touch the future. Um, if we want to give our children and grandchildren, our students, our patients, a better world going forward, we need to ensure that we are taking care of the natural world. Otherwise, what they inherit from us will be much worse than what you and I inherited from our parents. Um, I like the uh, Native American wisdom that says we don't in fact, inherit the world from those who came before us. We borrow it from our children. Uh, 
and we need to pass it back to them in, in good shape. So Thrive is, is, has a whole host of major national uh, initiatives, and uh, so we're a part of a, a major coalition uh, to work for the passage of that. And it's going to take a long time. Uh, but, you know, Dave, we don't have a long time. We certainly don't. And just like that, we're out of time. He is Fred Cole, UUP president. That's United University Professions Higher Education Union. Fred, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to talking to you again. Thanks very much, Dave. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Ten years ago, the Occupy Wall Street movement quickly spread to other cities, including Albany. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas takes a look back. 2011's Occupy Wall Street movement started in September when protesters gathered in Zuccotti Park, rallying against economic inequality. By October, Occupy had established itself in Albany, across the street from City Hall and next to the state capitol. The movement put a spotlight on income inequality, which has become a perennial political focus. The local anti-establishment crusade against the power of elites, the so-called 1%, was known as Occupy Albany. The group's encampment was one of 2,000 across the globe. It sprung up in Academy Park across from the state capitol. More than 100 protesters, ranging from high school students to senior citizens, demonstrated in a show of solidarity. Among prominent local voices of the national movement, Bradley Russell was arrested in November 2011 after proclaiming he would exercise his First Amendment rights by occupying a spot on a strip of land in Lafayette Park, which adjoins Academy Park. Today, Russell believes Occupy was a catalyst for social change. As far as I'm concerned, what I've seen is that the same people who were in that Occupy camp downtown and in the movement kind of nationwide have gone on, they've used those skills, they've continued to, uh, you know, be active, they've continued to participate in any variety of, you know, important social movements since then. Collectively, the movement brought the whole notion of economic inequality to the forefront of our politics. I think it set the stage for two campaigns from Bernie Sanders. You know, I, I feel like it was a training ground for a lot of people. A lot of people gained organizing experience they've gone on to use. You know, I've taken that myself to my workplace where I've organized a union. Russell says his fight for freedom of speech was bolstered when Albany County District Attorney David Soares refused to prosecute more than 100 Occupy-related cases, including one involving Colin Donnarumma. 2011, at the time, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you had Governor Cuomo, uh, you had Dean Scalos running the Senate, Sheldon Silver running the Assembly. Since that time, all three have either been convicted of felonies or corruption 
or resigned office. I'm not saying there's a direct correlation there, but I do think it's really interesting looking back uh, 10 years later. Some say Occupy changed the psychology of people, both in the capital region and nationwide, about what to expect from government. Yeah, the really interesting thing with Occupy is I don't think anyone really saw it coming the way it took off. Um, I think the, the message, like we are the 99% um, of, of economic justice and participatory democracy, really resonated in, in a way that it just spread like wildfire. And, and I do think that that type uh, of movement certainly could occur again. I think the macro conditions haven't fundamentally changed. I think there's still a need for that type of organizing and mobilizing. So I think it, it certainly could happen again. I think it probably needs to happen again. On December 22, 2011, as the cold and snow closed in, Occupy Albany ignored an order from the city to vacate the park. Then, on Christmas Eve, police moved in to end the occupation, arriving in the afternoon on the day of the deadline, as they had promised. In some other cities, officers came without warning in dead of night. By early evening, all the Occupy Albany tents were gone, save one taken intact by the protesters who paraded it through the city. That led to a protracted legal standoff. Eventually, charges against the protesters were not pursued by the district attorney. Again, Russell. I think a lot of people feared that that we would be dispersed and kind of scattered to the winds and that wouldn't, you know, amount to anything. And, and that's just simply not what happened. I think what happened is they, you know, it was like blowing on a dandelion. Instead of having, you know, all those seeds in one place, it dispersed all these activists to various locations who have used those skills, um, you know, very constructively since then. So, you know, while it seemed like quite a beating that we took and literally physically and, you know, figuratively, I think I think the long-term results of that, you know, speak for themselves. Occupy Albany to this day maintains a presence on Facebook. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. That about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2142. Or just listen to our podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. David Gustina.